The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information, head over to investmart.com.au. Welcome to the first Skin in the Game podcast for 2019. My name is Nathan Bell. I'm the Portfolio Manager for our Growth and Income Funds at Investmart slash Intelligent Investor. And I'm joined by Alex Hughes, who looks after our Small Companies Fund. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Nath. So we're going to have, uh, well, we've been through a hell of a lot of results. It's only the 7th of February, and this is really my first uh, profits uh, reporting season since I've been back at Intelligent Investor. Straight into the thick of it, now. <laughs> I forgot how difficult it is when you're trying to cover so many companies and you're staying up till 10 o'clock to just try and keep up. So we'll get straight into it because we've got so many companies we want to talk about today. Uh, we've got one question um, from the uh, listeners that we'll finish off with today. Uh, but just remember, if you've got any questions you'd like us to deal with, I know um, we tend to attract the, the stock nerds and it is very stock specific, but if you've just got general questions about uh, the economy, interest rates, our views and, and how they impact our portfolios, then we're happy to answer those as well. So the first company, was this is probably the biggest result in the sense it is one of Australia's biggest company and that was Commonwealth Bank reported yesterday. I'm not going to go through the individual numbers, but I think there's a number of points I want to raise and Alex, you've got some views here which I think are also very important. So the first thing is the number one driver of a bank's profits over time is the net interest margin. So this is the difference between the interest that they charge people to loan money and uh, the interest they have to pay out on deposits. So it's called the net interest margin. And really, it's just a profit margin of the bank. And at the moment, that's really stuck still. And, and I think this is really where there's going to be more pressure in the future. And there's a number of reasons for that. At the moment, wholesale borrowing that um, all the Australian banks have to do, uh, they have to borrow money from overseas into, in addition to their deposits to help fund them. That is really at a low point at the moment, so that can really only get more expensive. We've also got investor loans are drying up rapidly and the only people really borrowing money for a home now are owner-occupiers. So that's a really huge source of demand for the banks that's disappearing at the moment. Compliance costs, as you would imagine, having gone through the Hain Inquiry and now actually having to do something about it, um, has really forced up the costs. So again, more profits, uh, more pressure on the profit margins of the banks. And something that uh, I think is uh, really worth considering, anytime you look at the four banks, a lot of people are either attracted to the statistically cheaper banks, which is, tends to be always National Australia Bank and ANZ, and there are some who prefer the higher quality banks, which is Westpac and CBA, and um, that's definitely where, where I align myself. And a lot of analyst investors are looking at these, I guess, two groups within the group of four and saying, well, why does Commonwealth Bank deserve a 20% premium in its valuation on a statistical basis? So if you look at price to book, um, which is what most banks are, are valued off, for example, and a lot of the arguments are CBA doesn't deserve such a high premium. Uh, but the analogy I always think of is I think about Wells Fargo in America and whether people would have been happy to pay a 20% premium for that bank going into the GFC compared to a Bank of America, for example. Uh, and the way things turned out, I think they would have actually been happy to pay a much higher premium than that. Sometimes when you're doing analysis, it is very numbers focused, but you've also got to look at the qualitative factors as well, things that don't instantly show up on the balance sheet or a financial statement. And I much prefer Westpac and CBA because if we go do go into a downturn, um, or particularly a housing lever recession at some point, they are able to uh, flick the switch on their prices 
with the larger custom, largest customer bases in Australia compared to NAB and ANZ. So what I mean by that is they've actually got more power uh, to increase their profits in, in a downturn than what the other banks have because they're far more, their customers are far more price sensitive and any price changes that NAB and ANZ um, offer to clients or customers is going to have a much bigger impact on their profit, uh, their P&L. And in those times is when you want to raise capital very quickly because your balance sheet's under stress. Uh, and that's the reason why I prefer Westpac and CBA because that's the advantage they have by being the biggest. Uh, and in the downturn, that's when you need that advantage the most. So it doesn't show up on the P&L today, but I'm happy owning, I guess, the most expensive banks in Australia. There are a few other things to worry about, and you may have read about these already, but I think the collapse in the savings ratio in Australia is one. Um, it really tells you that people out there are really struggling to pay their mortgages or pay their investment loans. Interestingly, the, the cash uh, that CBA has actually went up 8% in their result. Um, now, that's not a huge move necessarily, but I just wonder whether more people are coming out of the stock market, got more cash in their, in their bank account, and are starting to get worried about what future mortgage payments might be. Alex, you know a little bit about the banks. What are some of the things that you're seeing out there that have got you worried? So when I open a presentation, I don't actually come at it from the perspective of a bank shareholder. Um, banks are too big for the small company mandate to start with, but I'm really trying to get a read on what's happening in the economy. And um, so I'm picking apart the, the data there, trying to get a read on the consumer and things like that. And one of the things I noticed was credit card arrears, the 30-day figure um, was starting to tick up. And historically, that's been a an important leading indicator for other arrears and other areas, particularly mortgages. So adding to your point, it sounds like the consumer is coming under pressure and that has implications across the economy. Um, so that's been at the front of my mind recently and um, there were a few stats from um, CBA's latest result which suggests times are getting tougher for the consumer. So something to think about there. Yeah, the bad debts were basically neg negligible. I think they might have actually been a record low, which yeah. may not make sense to people looking at property prices coming down but as an asset class home prices or homes are just so slow moving if you look in America it was really two years before we got anywhere near um, the worst of it it was really early 2007 before we started to see problems yeah I'm actually my plan over the next few weeks is to go to CBA and to try and get a, a mortgage just to see how much they'll lend to me, see what the interaction's like, see if, if they're pulling back. So maybe I can report back on that in, in one of the upcoming podcasts. I read a statistic the other day that said 40% of all loan applications are currently being knocked back and the old measure was something like 12%. Yeah. Um, and that's also analogous to what I'm hearing uh, in some other industries too about property lending, like commercial property lending, where the banks are really just stepping back and um, it's almost impossible to get a loan. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting with the Royal Commission coming out and taking perhaps a, a softer stance on a number of things. I wonder whether that will have some change um, because I guess there was risk for bank executives to be pursued on a criminal basis and that seems to be largely off the table. So I wonder whether that will change behaviour and we'll see that in the underwriting of loans and, and things. So I think that's something to watch going forward. Yeah, I can't help but think this Hain inquiry has actually been a good thing for the banks because they needed to slow their lending because the increasing in lending or the marginal loan they were making in the last couple of years was getting increasingly risky. And what this has done is told the whole industry to pull back at the same time. So it's very hard if you're one of four banks and you want to restrict your lending to do that because you can have a whole bunch of shareholders saying, why is your profits falling? Why is your dividend falling? Uh, when the other guys are still going quickly. Yeah, even when it's the most sensible thing to do, <laughs> perhaps. And I think uh, one other point is, I actually think that 
the banks um, mostly would actually be quite happy to get rid of their asset management or wealth businesses, uh, which uh, at least three of them are planning to do. Mm. And the reason I say that is because they're actually, in terms of profit, a fairly small part of the banks anyway. And now we're seeing a lot more pressure on fees, uh, and that's just going to continue uh, like relentlessly over the next 10 and 20 years. So we're at some sort of you know, a peak for asset markets. And I think this is a time if you actually wanted to offload them where you really do want to get rid of those businesses. And essentially the Hain Inquiry has given them the opportunity to do it and say that, oh, actually we've been forced to get rid of these businesses, even though I think they'd actually quite like to anyway. Yep, that's a sensible thing to do. Okay, so that's uh, more than enough on uh, banking and Commonwealth Bank. Alex, what have you been looking at? Um, the most recent investment in the small company fund that we've made um, during the recent downturn in equity prices has been a, a small IT distributor called Dicker Data. And it probably wins the award for one of the most boring companies on the ASX. So it's not going to capture investor imaginations. But in terms of the alignment between the owners of the business and the, the management of the business, it's probably one of the best that I've seen. Um, and I say that because um, this company was founded by a gentleman by the name of David Dicker. He remains the CEO of the business. He owns about 38% of the business. And he actually doesn't take a wage from the business. He receives all of his remuneration via the company's quarterly dividends. So in terms of aligning his interests as the manager with the shareholders' interests, it's, it's about as, as, as best um, you can get. Um, so this business is an IT distributor. Um, so that means they, they buy from the OEMs throughout the world. Um, so just describe what OEMs are? The original, original equipment manufacturers. So these so are the, like are an the Apple big, or a Samsung or? Yeah, the big hardware companies. So they're pre predominantly hardware based. So they're buying PCs and servers and all of the computer hardware that's used throughout Australia for small businesses um, right across the board. And so this is a, a low margin business. It's a, it's a high volume model. So they make about a 9% gross margin on the, the goods that they sell. Um, and they do it in a tremendous amount of throughput. So it's all about utilization. It's all about high volume. And they've got a fixed capital base, which is predominantly their warehouse, which is in Botany Bay here in New South Wales. Um, so when, when they're selling lots of goods um, and making a small margin on that and doing that really efficiently, um, they can make really healthy returns on capital. So um, yeah, it's, it's not an exciting business by any stretch, but it's been very well managed. And when you read the annual reports, you get a real impression that this is um, a business that's been um, closely, closely watched and, and, and very well managed over a long period of time. You know, that analogy of how when you rent a car, you don't wash a rental car. I think that's true here. You know, David Dicker owns a lot and he, he runs it on that basis. Is the cloud a threat to this business in terms of the products it sells? Well, the, the, the biggest portion of their revenue now is hardware. And so what that means with the cloud, um, you have, instead of people storing software and other things on their own computer, it's now being stored on a central server. And so that shifts that hardware um, purchasing from being that individual PC perhaps to some central organization that buys servers. So there's been a huge growth in, in companies like NextDC and so on that build servers and buy hardware from people like Dicker Data. Um, so that, that shifts, but it doesn't necessarily mean there's less demand for the underlying hardware. It just shifts where it's actually stored. Um, the company does sell software. Um, and that is a growing part of its business. So it's not a big part of revenue today. So um, if more and more software is procured through the internet via SaaS and things like that, um, there's, there's a risk that perhaps they'll lose some of the, the on-premise software they sell today. 
Um, but in saying that, they have been growing the, the cloud software as well. You know, they've got relationships with lots of customers and it's easy for them to upsell other things. So I think the risk of the cloud is quite low here. And if you look back at the company's history, they've been very effective at um, diversifying their vendor relationships. So when they listed, they had an, a number of big companies like HP and Lenovo and, and things, which represented a large portion of their revenue. But now it's very diverse and they sell products from lots of different customers, sorry, lots of different vendors um, across lots of different areas of, of hardware and software. So um, the company's been, been very effective at that. And um, they've groomed a new leadership team that's um, rising through the ranks and is, is set to take over the business in the future. And um, it was actually the, the buying of some of the newer employees and executives that um, draw us to the company. And it had a good result as well recently. Yeah, that's right. So um, we were fortunate to be buying shares just before they upgraded. Um, so they had guided for about 8% growth and they've increased that to about 15% growth for the 2019 financial year. Um, so things are going well. We were, when we were doing um, in the final days of our analysis, we saw that Data3 um, upgraded their earnings as well, which is a somewhat similar business that has similar drivers. So that gave us confidence um, as we were buying stock that um, the operating conditions across the industry were, were going quite well. So, so that's that sticker data. It's about a two and a half percent position for us. So it is quite small, but um, things are going well. We like what we see. We like the management, and we like the outlook. Great. So another company in our growth portfolio that recently updated results was Resmed. Uh, I think most people who have followed Intelligent Investor for a while will be very familiar with uh, this company that produces uh, masks and what a friend of mine used to call fancy vacuum cleaners uh, for people to breathe at night while they sleep. Uh, to uh, stop the symptoms of sleep apnea. And there was actually really no problems with that part of the business, but uh, the sh share price came down around 20% after the announcement. And as I said, it didn't really have anything to do with its core business, but I think people were somewhat surprised that the amount of money just going into these other businesses, these acquisitions it's been making, where it's trying to help with healthcare in the home, which is going to be a, a huge trend uh, from here on. Uh, the idea is for people to be able to help treat themselves in their own home rather than having them in the hospital, which is extremely expensive and really draws on all the resources of, a, of an area or an industry that um, has staff shortages anyway. So I think it is the way of the future, but ResMed has paid some awfully big um, valuations for these businesses, and it's unclear whether they're going to work out. Uh, I would have said that because um, we only bought the stock fairly recently and we did pay a, a big multiple for it but we just believe in the future i think there's only about a quarter um, or more of all sleep apnea patients are actually diagnosed each year and it continues to grow as um, obesity is a bigger problem and they tend to go sleep apnea tends to go hand in hand with um, weight the, the, the heavier you are and um, the more you suffer uh, so there's a lot of growth out there for the business uh, but this is a fairly big departure for management the one thing I would say, though, is ResMed has next to no debt, and even if it turns out these newer businesses are a failure, it's not going to kill the business, and that's the sort of thing I like looking for in a business where it's tails and we win, but heads we don't lose too much. So I don't think there's anything wrong with the underlying business at the moment. Uh, there's a few weak spots uh, you know, in Europe, uh, but you know they'll change over time but uh, we're pretty eager to see how these other businesses are going to um, turn out over the next couple of years, but it is going to take some time. What's next on your radar, Alex? 
Frontier Digital Ventures was a company that updated their results on a quarterly basis, so they have a calendar year, so this gave us a read for the revenue over the last 12 months. So just and quickly explain what Frontier is. So it's a holding company for investments in classifieds in Frontier markets. So it's run by the Catcher Group guys, um, Sean D. Gregorio is the CEO, and he's had history at REA Group and iProperty. So and Catcher Group is an internet uh, couple of entrepreneurs in is Singapore or Malaysia. Yeah. And uh, they've been fairly well known in that area for a few big investments, iProperty, which ended up getting sold to REA Group. And I believe they're trying to list or uh, iKiwi uh, in Australia coming up, which is essentially the Asian version of Netflix. Yeah. Um, I thought it was called iFlix or is it iKiwi? I uh, know. Uh, maybe I've mixed it up. I've mixed it up with a Russian company. So it is iFlix. Oh, right. And uh, look at too many companies staying up too late. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting they're trying to look at listing the company in Australia of all places. Is that right? I always worry when a product is sold abroad somewhere and then they come to Australia to look to sell the IPO, it says something about we're prepared to pay a premium for some unknown reason. Uh, but going back to Frontier, Alex? Yeah, so they updated that revenue was ahead of expectations. They guided for 40 mil and I think it came in just below 42 million, so that was encouraging. And also uh, five out of their 15 investments are now profitable and that was ahead of expectations of four profitable investments by this stage. So that's encouraging, it suggests that operationally the businesses are performing well and I guess the profitability of those five perhaps lowers the risk of any dilution in the future, um, that these businesses are going to be contributing, they won't need further capital and um, shareholders are less likely to need to put more money in. Um, Frontier has about $20 million of cash, its cash burn is low, so I think that risk was already low, but that's just further confirmation that there that things are on track. Um, I think this is a massive year for Zameen in particular, because Zameen is the REA group or realestate.com.au of Pakistan, and people say, well, why on earth would I want to own a Pakistani version of REA group? Uh, but the way I think about it is there's 195 million people in Pakistan, uh, all getting mobile phones, and I remember when I was growing up, I always saw these. The only time I ever heard Pakistan mentioned was when they were at war with India on the, I think it was the Kashmir border uh, when I was young. But if you actually go onto the Zameen website and look at some of the new apartment buildings there, uh, they look just the same as the new flash apartment buildings going up in Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane or anywhere else. Yeah, I was surprised by the price too. The, the price is very high for a number of them, quite comparable to some Australian apartments. <laughs> well, that's a really important point because Zameen is actually making a lot of money not just from uh, the advertising on its website but also it's actually clipping the ticket on all of these apartment sales. Mm. Um, one, one of the reasons is it's actually we take it for granted that we trust property transactions in Australia with certain people and these websites in these frontier markets or growing markets, there's a lot less trust in a lot of the people involved in these markets and so Zameen is actually seen as a safe place to transact money and the property developers are very happy if Zameen could be a place to advertise and help sell those properties. So there's potentially much more value on offer if they can strengthen that part of their business? I think there's more value, but I also think it, ma it does make the business more cyclical than realestate.com, for example, which is just pure advertising. Because if all of a sudden, those, if you go to a, to a property downturn, you're just going to have a whole heap of apartment sales that aren't getting done anymore, and that's really just going to hammer the bottom line, temporarily at least. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So th this coming year, with five investments profitable, I think we can... Um, safely assume that Zameen is, is certainly profitable given that it has about $22 million of revenue. So business has been growing at about 80%. So this next year is going to be really interesting because 
management have a decision where if growth continues, it's quite likely to be quite profitable in the coming year, or they could use some of that to reinvest and just really strengthen the competitive position. And I think both of those decisions are coming from a place of strength. So um, I think, yeah, is reiterating your point, I think it's going to be quite an interesting year for Zemeen and for the wider portfolio. I think that's one of the big knocks, at least from my point of view, when you look at this company, there's very little information provided of the individual companies. So if Zemeen grew, I think, 80, grew revenue 85% last year, if it was to do something, anything like that again, or even if it was just 50% and it wasn't profitable, I th think that'd be a little bit of a red flag because it really is the biggest asset by a long, long way in that portfolio. And at some point, I, I expect Zemeen will probably get listed on its own. Uh, I don't know how that process would work, whether shareholders would just get, uh, just be like any other uh, spin-off where you just end up getting shares in the listed business. Yep, my guess I'd be quite happy if that happened, <laughs> don't, don't want them to sell it. No, I think that's right. It's, and uh, my guess would probably, uh, and this is just a guess, but probably on the AIM market in London, which is a small cap market, uh, because a lot of Pakistan people live in London and in England. And uh, not surprisingly, they're actually a lot of the uh, buyers of property back in Pakistan and recently they said sales slowed down with Zameen because there was um, some temporary roadblocks put up from um, foreigners or you know, ex-Pakistan people um, living abroad that were actually trying to buy homes and that really slowed up so um, hopefully that bodes well for Zameen and for Frontier next year or this year. Next company, uh, just I'll just go through a couple of very quick ones because there wasn't a lot of information on these but Reliance Worldwide which is a, a core holding in our growth portfolio uh, this is the plumbing supplies business for um, the uh, plumbing connections where in the old days you used to actually have to get a saw and then weld up these uh, the pipes in behind the wall in your um, in your home and these guys have a product called Sharkbite uh, which essentially uh, speeds up the process by about three or four times. Uh, Resol uh, Plumbing Supplies in Australia also has a very similar product uh, but these are, I actually saw these uh, for the first time over Christmas and got a comparison. Uh, one of my family members is a plumber and told me about the different prices and the headaches he had with some and others. And so he actually said Reese had the better plumbing product, the competing product. Uh, but he said you can understand why people are using the, the Shark Bite product because it's just so much quicker and saves so much time, and which gives Reliance a little bit of pricing power. You know, because if you're saving someone you know, a whole bunch of labour, then you can afford to put the price up of these little gadgets, which are essentially only six or seven or eight bucks each. Uh, but anyway, the company came out, reiterated, um, no change in its profit expectations. You've seen the share price jump up around 10% over the last month or so, and that was really based on the big freeze that's happening in America. And the big freeze is actually very good for plumbing supply companies because a lot of the old pipes tend to freeze uh, and then they break and then these new products come in and replace the old ones. So that's actually good business for Reliance. But unfortunately, their uh, main business is so far south uh, in the US that it actually hasn't, got, hasn't had a big deep freeze there yet. So mm. they said there might be a, a tiny fall in um, profits, uh, but it was no big deal. And the other one uh, that reported last night was Clydesdale Bank, which is uh, a holding in both the growth and income portfolio. I don't expect there's going to be any good news in the short term for this business, uh, although I am looking forward to, uh, in on 19th of June, the company will set out its um, economic, sorry, financial goals for the next three years, which I think is really important. But uh, the business, I actually think, could potentially double 
investor returns with a combination of higher dividends um, and a return to a more fair valuation at the moment. It's trading around 0.7 times tangible book value, which is about one third of Commonwealth Bank. And I think it's a much better bank than that. But at the moment, there's huge competition for loans because the housing market in the UK is slowing. And that's something we're seeing in CBA's results and something the Australian banks are going to have to deal with over the next few few years uh, as we reduce mortgage levels, mortgage debt levels. Uh, but anyway, Clydesdale came out and said we, uh, by 2021, uh, given that the bank has recently acquired Virgin, uh, it expects a £150 million annual run rate of cost savings. That's up from £120 million. So that was the good news. Uh, but buried right at the end, which I didn't really like, was that they just uh, talked about how um, basically revenue is going to be uh, tough to grow because of the intense competition for home loans at the moment. So I'm not sure how the share price is going to react today, but this is a long-term holding for us. And I think if we can sit through the pain over the next couple of years, I, th I hope this is, well, I think this is going to work out very well. What's next for you, Alex? Um, one investment we made during the recent sell-off in equity markets was Zero which is a company I'm sure most listeners will be familiar with. And um, in terms of quality, I'd probably have to put it as the best business on the ASX for me. I, I struggle to think of a big better call. business. It is a big call, but I, yeah, I mean, we could maybe have a whole podcast on that at some point in the future, but yeah, I think it's one of the best. Um, but it's a business that I've struggled with in the past, mostly due to valuation, because I, partly because of my own biases, I think, but also partly because it is quite challenging to value. So. This business has about $500 million of revenue and it's just profitable now and um, you know it's trading about a $6 billion valuation, so about 12, 12 times revenue. So for a, a, a diet in the mall value investor, that is quite a challenging calculation there. Um, but I mean, what, one part of that is the, the marketing expenses. So Zero spends a lot to acquire new customers and they expense all of that in the first year. Um, but they tend to hang on to their customers for about 10 years and that um, duration is actually increasing. So if you did a mental um, calculation there to amortise the cost of acquiring a customer over the customer lifetime, um, zero would actually be a lot more profitable than it actually is. And I, I think that is the right way to think about it. Um, but I mean that's something that we've known for a long time so that, that isn't any new thinking there. But I guess trying to rethink about zero and how it fits in the world I've been focusing on the platform side of things. So Zero is a platform for small businesses and their advisor. So it becomes that central meeting point um, using the data to inform you know, reporting and, and tax and business decisions. Um, it's also the platform for small businesses and financiers. So again, the central meeting point um, using the data to underwrite loans. Um, and it's also a platform for third-party software developers to build apps um, that integrate with Xero and that extends Xero's functionality. So you're getting network effects on multiple levels there. And in the past, I, I think I struggled to actually appreciate that and the, and the value of that and what that would mean. And Xero and is actually quite unique because it was born in the cloud. It has one platform. So it's the most advanced in these, in these platform areas because its competitors have numerous products and so they have to spend their research and development tinkering and improving all of these different product lines instead of just focusing on one product line like Xero does. So Xero is able to move much faster with things like automation and machine learning and, and I think that's, that's going to lead to them improving much faster than competitors and, and just their leadership 
um, expanding much faster than, than others. So I think businesses like Myob are going to really struggle. I think it's going to be re competitive with Intuit in the States, who has been quite effective at catching up in cloud. Um, but Xero is in a strong position to acquire many more customers. I think there's lots of pricing power there. And when you start to consider the value of some of those platform dynamics, I think even at, at today's price, it's quite an interesting equation there. So, um, so that's a new investment for us. We've, we've dipped our toe in the water there, tried to get over some of our own biases and mistakes of the past. And, and, and yeah, I think it's, it's very strongly positioned for the next 10 years. Yeah, if anyone listening doesn't have uh, much experience with looking at these uh, software as a service businesses or SaaS businesses as they're called, there's lots of good articles uh, on, just Google them and it actually explains you know, what the best thing is for these businesses to do in terms of the cost of acquisition and how long the, the lifetime value of a customer. Uh, and once you put all these little things together, it actually makes a, a lot of sense. And I think that's really important when you look at a business that doesn't necessarily report nice, simple profit and loss numbers um, like most businesses. Any other stocks from you, Alex? I think we had a question that we came did. through a company that neither of us <laughs> know, but um, it was Kavata. It was basically WTF, what is going on? Yes, yeah, I think um, the, the listener said that the share price is down about 97%. He's wondering what to do with that stock, and I had a brief look at it. I don't know the company. Um, I saw in the recent announcements that they've raised a bunch of capital and they've made a transformational acquisition. So it sounds like, given the share price decline, that the old concept didn't work and they're on to the next thing. Um, I think we can safely say that given the, the, the members down 97%, I think the old thesis is clearly broken. So probably the, the right decision to make is to sell that investment. You know, you need to take that money and move on. Um, that's probably what I would do in this situation. Um, however, you know, he now holds a much smaller position in some new business. That's going to go off. Ticket. Yeah, it's a lottery ticket. So, you know, it's not, you haven't made this investment thesis. Um, who knows where it's going to go. The probability of success is very low. Um, but I mean, it's, it's a very small holding for you now, given it's fallen so much. So if, if you want to have a punt on that, um, go right ahead. But, but do so knowing that the probability of success is, is very low for you there. Just on a, a somewhat related matter, um, but I know sometimes when people find themselves with a company that actually goes bankrupt, it can take many, many, many years before you finally get a de declaration that that particular security or stock uh, or you know, whatever piece of paper you hold is actually bankrupt and then you can finally claim the losses through your tax return. There is a website out there, I believe, called Delisted where you can actually sell uh, any tiny shareholding you may have left and crystallise that loss. And I know that's worked for a bunch of people in certain situations when some of those managed investment schemes went broke during the GFC. Uh, I'm not even sure still whether some of those securities have had the bankruptcy declaration, so people are still hanging around trying to claim the loss, which is the absolute pits because not only have you lost your money, but at least you look forward to offsetting some of your profit, uh, capital gains with the losses. And then you know here we are 10 years later and you still can't. Anything else from you, Alex? No, I think that's it for me. Um, right. Lots to think about. Mm -hmm in the coming weeks with lots of companies reporting. So I'm sure future podcasts will be quite interesting. So yeah, I guess we'd encourage listeners to send in any questions they have and we can respond to those. We also have a national roadshow coming up. You can see the details on our website. So hopefully uh, I'll be able to uh, meet and talk to some of you um, at those. Uh, other than that, um, that's it for Skin in the Game today. Uh, send us in your questions. We're always happy to answer them and we'll speak next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks. To learn more about the income, growth and small companies funds,
head over to investmart.com.au. Relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered by our team, send us an email at skininthegame at investmart.com.au.